we are in the book of Colossians. It's uh, four chapters long, and uh, it's written by the Apostle Paul to uh, who is uh, probably the, the earliest, one of the earliest uh, followers of Jesus Christ, a convert from Judaism. And he, um, after he became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, his life was his completely transformed, and he endeavored to plant churches, start churches in different places. And uh, a byproduct of this ministry um, is this church in Colossae, which is not pastored or founded by him, but one of his disciples, a guy by the name of, of Epaphras, helped found this church. And it's uh, in Turkis, tur- not Turkey, tur- it's in Turkey, excuse me. And uh, he, it's, in, it's known as the Lycus Valley, and it was a pretty well-known area at the time. And Paul is writing to encourage this church because this church was fledgling in their faith, and they were encountering all kinds of weird teaching because, see, many people thought that uh, Christianity was, and it was, originally found as a subgroup within Judaism. And so when Jews would meet these Christians, especially these converts who had converted uh, to Christianity, and they still saw them as becoming Jewish. So they wanted to add to their faith because they felt it was incomplete, that they were misguided Jews. So they wanted to help establish and strengthen them to show them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we're going into this very important letter to find what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what does it look like. And as, as I think about what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to be a Christian, I, I can't help but have symbols in my mind. I mean, there are certain things that you, you hear the word and a symbol comes into your mind. Have you ever had that happen? Like if I say the word Nike, what is the picture that comes in your mind? The swoosh symbol, right? I mean, if you say McDonald's, you got the golden uh, arches, right? You got, you got different symbols that come in your mind. Or Kentucky Fried Chicken, you got the kernel. That's there. There are pictures that we have in our minds when we see or think of certain words, and um, symbols have meaning to us. Now, as I'm thinking of, of the, the central symbol of Christianity, it's none other than the cross. And the cross has meaning. In, in our culture today, you can ask someone what the cross means, and they're going to have so many different opinions. You can ask one person what it means, if they maybe grew up in church, and um, they, it might have a feeling of nostalgia. Maybe they don't go to church anymore, but they remember it from when they were a kid, and, and it remembers faith, they remember faith, and they remember family, and, and there's a, this feeling of uh, love that comes over them, or, or just, you know, nostalgia. There's others, though, they've never grown up in church, they have no clue what the cross means, they just see it as a great piece of art or jewelry. See it on necklaces and uh, see it in different displayed in places, and they might just think of it as jewelry. Still other people... When they think of the cross, they think of hypocrisy. Maybe they met someone who said they were a follower of Jesus, but all they saw were the rules and not the relationship. And, and maybe they were hypocrites. Maybe these were people who said they were Christians, but yet denied him uh, by their life. So when they see the cross, it's a, pure, it's a picture of, of disdain. They didn't like that picture. So we have all of these different opinions and ideas of what the cross means. And you know, all opinions are, are good and great to have, but... What did God intend the cross to mean? You know, when we, we go back and you, you ever read a book or something like that, I mean, we can get all these different things from a book or a story, but you always want to ask yourself, what did the author intend it to mean? So today, what, what I want us to do is I want us to go back and, and see what God meant the cross to mean. What does it mean for us? It's not just jewelry that we'll see. And, and for those who, who have known it in a very negative light as something that maybe indicates judgment or hypocrisy, I'm, I'm asking that we can leave our, our cultural baggage at the door and let's go into the Word of God and see and open our heart to see what He has for us, that we can see and understand what the cross means, not just in our world, but in our own lives.
today. So let me, let me ask this question as we kick off our time together. What does the cross mean to you? I want you to think about that, to hold on to that. What does it mean to you? What does it symbolize to you? What effect does it have in your life? And I'm not talking about the literal wooden cross. I'm talking about everything that the cross represents. What does it mean? And how does this impact my life? So I want us to keep those questions in our mind as we jump into this uh, wonderful text to see what God has for us. So let's pause for a moment, ask for God's blessing on our message time, shall we? Father, we are grateful that you have chosen to speak to us. And Lord, today we ask that you might show us what the cross means. That we might go within your word and that we might discover the true meaning that you have intended for it. So Lord, please touch us, use us, and speak to us that we might go forth changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump into this text. We like to walk through the text verse by verse. So um, if you're at all not familiar with what's going on, um, we'd like to walk through these verses and kind of break them down and see uh, what the language says about it and how to apply these to our life. What did it mean then and how do we apply it in the here and now? So let's start off in verse 11. So we're in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. As Paul writes, in him, he's referring to Jesus, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, for those of us who aren't Jewish, this, this is a verse that kind of throws us off. We see the term circumcision, and we go, what does that mean? Uh, and what is circumcision? Well, circumcision was the, um, um, a practice prescribed by God given to um, a man named Abraham who is known as the father of the Jewish nation. And it was the, the practice of um, uh, removing the foreskin from um, the male genitals to show the intimate relationship that he was to have with God. And it was to be a perpetual sign that would go on between generation to generation. Now, let me stop here for a moment. It was just for males, not females. I know that sounds silly, but in some cultures, especially that we've seen in, in um, uh, majority world cultures, you see some embracing Christianity and actually trying to circumcise both men and women. And this it was only originally intended for males as part of the Jewish community. And it was a sign that you to belong to this, this community. And if you didn't have this done, you were to be removed from the community. It was a serious thing. It was a serious sign that all Jewish men were to do, especially when they were, they were boys, they would be circumcised um, right around the seventh day uh, of their birth. And so it was a prescribed by Jewish law. And you couldn't be part of the, the community of God unless you were circumcised. Now, this, remember, it's a Jewish rite that is there, and this Jewish rite is encountering Christianity. Now, Christianity comes in, and they're, they're Gentiles. Now, Gentiles usually, uh, by definition, weren't circumcised. They're actually known as the uncircumcised. So if they're Gentiles are converting into Christianity, and these Jews are thinking this is a sect of Christianity, I mean of Judaism, they think you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. So they're telling that to these people. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. The only thing that we need is Jesus' is, is faith in Christ. Matter of fact, this question was so important in the ancient world, and it was affecting so many churches that they came together in the A.D. 50 to debate this question in what was known as the Jerusalem Council. And they decided that circumcision wasn't necessary. The Old Testament was fulfilled in the person of Christ, and that now we have Christ. Everything about the Old Testament was to point to Jesus. 
And Paul deliberately uses this language to show that this relationship that we have is not a physical one, it's a spiritual one. Look at the text. He says, In him also you were circumcised. Not a literal circumcision, but a, a figurative one, a metaphorical one, with a circumcision made without hands. It's a spiritual one. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying that we have a relationship with God, this, this connection with God, and it's, it's not one that is physical, but one that is spiritual. Matter of fact, the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 28, says this, and you can turn there if you want, or just listen in. The Apostle Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He's saying you have a a, a spiritual connection, and the circumcision of Christ is a picture of the spiritual connection with God. And as we see what the cross means, we're going to see that it represents an incomprehensible connection with God. That's the first point that I want you to write down. It represents an incomprehensible connection connection that we have with Almighty God. Now, what does that mean? It's showing here that the cross was on the cross that Jesus took all of our sins upon himself. And that every, every single thing that we have ever done was placed upon him in a moment. Now, he's using the term circumcision, and he's actually connecting circumcision to crucifixion. See, it's symbolized, this incomprehensible connection of the cross that we have is symbolized by spiritually connecting circumcision to crucifixion. Now, you might say, how is that? Well, we see here he says it's the removal of flesh. And in essence, Christ on the cross, and it says here in the text, the circumcision of Christ. The NIV says the circumcision by Christ, which is actually a wrong, uh, an incorrect translation. It should be the circumcision of Christ in that when Christ was on the cross, it was the remo- his flesh was literally removed from his body when he was whipped. And it's this picture of him taking off uh, this flesh. It's being taken off of his body. Blood is now being poured forth in order to provide our redemption. We needed to be redeemed from our sin. And this circumcision is actually connected to his cr- crucifixion. Paul is using this metaphorical language because the blood needed to be shed for us to have a relationship with God. Did you know that? That your sin is so bad in the sight of God that you will face judgment and you have to pay the penalty for that sin that you have done. Every one of us, without exception. The scripture says we are destined to all die once and then face judgment. And we are going to stand, each one of us, in the presence of God and give an account for every single thing that we have ever done. And we have no means of paying that price that God requires, which was death. I mean, we will physically die. And because the scripture says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, in essence, this gift that God gives us is eternal life. And in essence, he is paying the price because he saw that the wages of our sin was death. We will die, but Jesus intervened and paid the price we could not. And he died in our place. So this, the cross is all pointing to this. This circumcision uh, is pointing from circumcision to crucifixion or uniting them together. And it's also connecting us by our baptism to his burial. See, it's what the cross represents. 
It's connecting our baptism to his burial. And we've shared this many different times. When you are baptized, it's not just sprinkling. Or it's not just pouring water. It's actually, the word means to, baptizo means to a dip, to immerse. And the idea was, is going under the water. It's a picture of going under the water. Now, it was a picture of us being buried with Jesus. Just as Jesus was buried in the tomb, we are buried in the water. And as we come out of the water, we are representing and uniting with his resurrection as he came out of the tomb. It's a picture of that. So it's seeing that our baptism is united to his burial. Now, some people say, well, I don't need to be baptized. Well, first of all, let me, let me say this. Jesus commands it. Jesus says, go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. The word there, it's an imperative. It's a command. Go forth and be baptized. You must be baptized. Now, does that save us? No, it's our faith that saves us. But it's baptism that is representative of that faith in action. So we see that it represents this, this it's, it's following his command, but it's also copying what he did. Jesus himself was baptized. It, it's, he, did he need to be baptized? No. He had no sin that he needed to be cleansed from. That's why when he came to John the Baptist, his near relative, John the Baptist says, wait a minute, it's I who need to be baptized by you, yet you come to be baptized by me. Why is it? And Jesus says, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. Meaning that I don't need to be baptized, but I'm uniting with sinful man. I'm identifying with him. This baptism is to identify with them in their sinful state. See, it's its, its connection that he's showing in this baptism. And we are to, to help follow that. We are to follow because he commands it and that we are copying it. And it's showing and representing our being cleansed from sin. Baptism then is a command, it's a copying, and it's a connection point. It's a picture of being cleansed from sin and having a clean conscience in the sight of God. You have a dirty conscience? You know, the Bible says this in 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, turn with me if you have opportunity. It means page 1016 in your pew Bible if you have one. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, you know, you can go through the little verses or and little... Um, script there. And Peter is writing this, and he, he says in verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. We all know the story of Noah, right? You know, we see that in babies' nurseries all the time, which I laugh to me, by the way, putting those in babies' nurseries. And, and if you've done that, I'm not condemning you, but it's kind of an ironic thing to put in babies' nurseries. Because really, we're like, oh, the animal's two by two, and he has the water, and Noah and the ark, and all the people drowning outside. It's, an, it's, a, it's a picture of God's judgment, is what it is. And we've had a tendency to neuter it, to take away its effect. So he says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, Noah and his family, his sons and their wives, along with his wife, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, what he means by that is not necessarily that the act of baptism saves. He's not saying that it literally removes your sin from you. As Sam Houston, the great Texan, once said when he was baptized in the Rio Grande, they said, Sam, your sins are washed away. And he said, God help the fish. He actually literally thought that's what happened. And that's not literally what occurs here. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, not literally, 
but as an appeal to God for a good conscience in the sight of God. See, what it is, it's faith in action. And baptism is faith in action. Just as Noah wasn't saved literally by the, I mean, he was saved literally by the ark in that he got in the ark, but it was his belief in God and his faith in God that caused him to get in the ark. And it's faith that sends us into the baptismal waters. And it symbolizes that we are passed through judgment with him. And you can see that also throughout the Old Testament when the the Red Sea parts for Israel to walk through. In essence, they're passing out of slavery and bondage to Egypt, and they go into the promised land where there's freedom. And yet the waters come and judge those who really didn't have faith. See, it's, it's that picture that we can see throughout the Scriptures. So baptism, or this connection that we have to the cross, is symbolized by baptism into his burial. Now, baptism not only serves to show how we've passed through the waters of judgment, but also shows that we have a new relationship through his resurrection. We have a new relationship through his resurrection. As Romans 6, 4 says, and you can turn there if you wish, we were buried therefore with him by baptism. It's faith. Baptized into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's our great initiation and our entrance into this life. As remember, we've shared many different times in here. Some people see baptism as a finish line, that they get baptized and they quit going to church. That's not what the Bible says. The baptized says it's the starting line. Faith gets you on the track. Baptism shows you're in the race. It's an incomplete metaphor, but you get the idea. And it shows that we, have, we have, are new creatures, that we are cleansed. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That we've passed from our sinful way of life, that the sins that we were enslaved to are done, and we are brand new creatures. It's kind of like when you've had a rough day. I mean, we've all had rough days, right? And you get home from work, and you're like, I just need a hot shower. I just want to wash the day away. And and you come out and you have a new perspective. Even after you've been in that shower, you get out and you're like, ah, I'm cleansed. I feel like that burden's been relieved. That's a picture of what baptism is. It's a cleansing and washing away of all those old things that clung to us. It's not something that needs to be repeated. It's a one-time thing that we do to express our faith and identify with Christ. Representing a new life, a new perspective. So it's a bit like starting over and entering into this life cleansed and the old is washed away. So we see that we have an incomprehensible connection, but we also experience incredible change. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the same person I was a few years ago. I want to grow. I want to change. Do you want to change? Do you want want to experience um, freedom from your sins? Do you want to see your perspective changed on life? And, And that's what the cross represents. It's representing a change. See, this is why I've been struggling so much with I see in different cultures and uh, different, different things that I've been seeing recently and how the church has compromised on some of these things within the world that we see so much going on right now. And I, I, was, I was looking at uh, reading a thing by Rob Bell. I don't know if you've ever heard of Rob Bell or not. Rob Bell uh, was a pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And he wrote a book uh, a couple years ago called Love Wins. And basically in this book, he said that Basically, no sinners are going to be saved. God's love is so great that everybody will be saved. 
from God's wrath. That's, that's basically what he said. And it really revealed to everyone that he is what we would consider, from a biblical standpoint, a heretic. He has departed from the biblical doctrine, uh, the, the, the scriptures. He's gone way beyond it. And now he has partnered with Oprah. And he is now promoting uh, all of these different alternative lifestyles. He is, he is endorsing things that the Bible clearly condemns. And one of those things that, the, that he um, just embraces so openly is the, the subject of uh, homosexuality. And um, he's saying that it's okay, you know, 2,000 years ago that was bad, but now we have, these are people, our sisters, our brothers, and our friends, and uh, how could he be against something like this? And I'd say, I I stopped and I said, well, first of all, he said, he said, this is a document written 2,000 years ago, how could we apply that today? I went, well, Christ died 2,000 years ago, and he definitely applies today, number one. Uh, Number two the second thing that's extremely important is there were friends and brothers and sisters and mothers, all these were doing it then. It's no different. No different then than it is now. And I said, thirdly, you don't understand the cross. Because see, the cross was God's judgment on a sin. Not just that sin, every sin. Lying, gluttony, blasphemy, adultery, pornography, fill in the blank, alcoholism, drunkenness, any type of sexual immorality. Not just that one, all of them. And he put it together. And that's why when people came into contact with the living Christ, it was showing God's judgment on sin and that we could be freed from our sin because death didn't hold Jesus. It doesn't have to hold us either. That we can be new creatures. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, and such were some of you. But you've been transformed. You've been washed. You've been changed by the Spirit of God. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to continue in that. That you can be freed. And if the Son sets you free of your sin, you will be free indeed. That's what it means. That there's a transformation that occurs. That we don't have to be enslaved to those sins that held us down. We don't have to be haunted by all those things that we used to do. That Christ can set us free because it's the power of the cross that gives us new life and incredible change. That's why you can see people transformed. You can see the woman who was a prostitute who becomes an evangelist. I mean, there's a, a woman named Paula Luden. I think that's her name, if I can remember it correctly. She was an adult film star that God saved and now is transforming and using her to reach out to other people lost in that industry. How can God do that? There's another woman who was ministering at the Super Bowl who had been, in, uh, had been a prostitute and had, had, had been trafficked and everything else, and God saved her, pulled, it out, pulled her out of that, and has now made her an evangelist sharing the truth of other women trapped in it, that you can be free from it. See, Christ doesn't want us to stay in our sin. He died to set us free from our sin. That's what it's about. That's an incredible change that God works in our life, that we don't have to try to work our way to God, that we shouldn't even try. Did you know when Jesus was on the cross, there are seven sayings that Jesus said from the cross. And one of the final ones was, it is finished. Now in Greek, it's one word. It's actually one word in Greek, and it's tetelestai. Tetelestai. And it's, it's actually in the perfect tense, meaning that it's a one-time thing. It's, it's perfectly done. It is finished. It's, there's nothing you can add to it. You know, I, I, made a, I, I told a story a little while ago talking about Mozart. I don't know if you remember this or not. And he was encountering uh, his arch rival, a guy named Antonio Salieri. The movie Amadeus brings this out. And Salieri is secretly really jealous of Mozart because he recognizes that he's a genius. 
And this man had, uh, he, his wife, he was in financial constraints, and he, his wife brings this piece to Salieri so he can get this position that Salieri could give to someone. And uh, he brings it secretly to Salieri, and Salieri says, he's reading the music, and he's seeing just this in his head, and he says to the wife, can you please leave this here, and I'll, I'll get back to you about the job. And she goes, I can't. I'm sorry. This is, these are my husband's, uh, the originals. And he goes, wait, these, these are originals? They're not copies? And he says, she goes, no, he doesn't make copies. So he stopped and went back and looked at it, and he saw that there wasn't any hesitation. There wasn't any stopping and erasing, correcting. He was simply writing down music that he'd finished in his head. That was completely perfect. It was completely perfect as it was. As a matter of fact, the emperor of uh, Vienna, if I remember correctly, or Austria, had heard one of Mozart's amazing operas. And, he, and, and we're not all classical music people. We can admit that. I mean, some of us, the idea of classical music is like nails on a chalkboard. But to, to, and, and that's how the, the emperor was. And he, he fell asleep in the middle of it like some people do. Can't appreciate that type of genius. And so when uh, it, time came, at the end of it, he went up and congratulates Mozart. And he goes, well, you know, it could be a little shorter. And Mozart's like, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, just cut a few notes. <laughs> he goes, which ones, majesty? It's perfect as it is. And it was perfect. I mean, and you could have people now go back and study it. It's perfect. Just how it's done. And in his mind, it was that way. You know, God's salvation is perfect. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. And it was finished. When he said, it is finished, meaning that you cannot work your way to God. There is no other act that you can do, no amount of money that you can give, no matter sacrifice that you can make, no matter, no matter punishment that you can put upon yourself to get God's favor because you already have it in Christ. When he said, it is finished, it was the perfect, it's a perfect tense, and it meant perfect with continuing results, that he took the wrath of God upon himself. And in some ways, when Jesus dropped his head, it was God the Father riding on Jesus paid in full. That all of our sins were paid for, past, present, and future. And Jesus took it and drank it down. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, it says that he drank the cup of the wrath of God. Now, I don't know of how many of us know what a, 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 I can't even say it right, but sommelier, is that how you say it? Seminier, is that it? The person that knows like intricate wines, does anyone know that? Sommelier, right? Whatever, I'm not French. Sommelier, that's how I'm going to say it. And, and these people can know like the vintage of a wine, the grape, where it was, how it was even fermented, like if it was in oak barrels and stuff like that. They can know all of these things intricate about it. You know, when I think of the Son of God drinking down the the dregs, that he could taste all of our sins in every moment, everything we'd ever done, and yet he still chose to drink it down. He didn't try to chase it with anything. Like, my daughter has been sick this past week, and we got this medicine that tastes like this awful bubble gum that's, that's been tinged with arsenic or something. And she drinks it down, and she hates it. She dances around. She's nine years, she's eight years old. She's like, I hate it. And she's like, I don't want to drink it. I don't want to drink it. And so she gets me up. Uh, I get her ready for school in the morning, and, and she has to remind me to give her the medicine because I forget everything. And so she goes, Daddy, I have to take the medicine. I'm like, okay. So I pour it in, and it's 10 little milligrams, and I give it to her. She's like, not yet. We have to count to three. Okay, got to count to three. So one, two. She goes, I, I need the, the Kool-Aid. Okay, what, what's that for? To chase it because it tastes terrible. Okay, and so I give her, I, I count it down, and I'm like, I got the, or the orange juice in one hand, and this in the other, and she's like, okay. I'm like, one, two, three, and I shove it in her face, and she's like, it's terrible. 
You know, and I think of that, and, and, and I think of what Christ did, and he didn't just do that. He didn't chase it with anything. He drank it down in all its fullness, experiencing all of our sin so that we could be, have new life in God. You know, it's, what, I mean, what does all this mean? this incredible change. It means that we are different creatures through Christ and that God has accepted Jesus as our substitute. That God has accepted Jesus as our substitute. Now, Tony Evans, a great African-American pastor in Dallas, Texas, or in Texas, he says, the ruler, he tells a story, excuse me, the ruler of the land one day passed a law that said you couldn't do certain things in the country. It was discovered that his mother had broken the new laws. The law keepers of the land brought the mother to her son, the king. They said, your mother has broken the law. You said anyone who breaks these law would receive 20 stripes. The ruler was caught in a catch 22. He had a standard that he could not change. It applied to everybody. He really did not want the rules or the consequences to apply to his mother. He loved his mother. How could he show love to his mother without playing favorites? The king unbuttoned his shirt and told the law keepers to whip him. He told the man with the whip to lash him with the whip 20 times. He bent over and took the 20 lashes for his mother. He met the demand of the law, yet he showed love and mercy to his mother by taking the penalty that she deserved of himself. Enter Jesus Christ. God says that the soul that sins shall die. The nature of death is eternal separation from a holy God. But Jesus Christ offered himself to be hung instead. Jesus Christ took the penalty of Calvary that you and I deserved. God obeyed the law that he himself had set, yet provided a substitute so that you and I could be delivered. He is both just and the justifier of all those who believe in Jesus Christ. The cross shows that any man's attempt to come to God by his own works and his own power is not enough. There is no basis for self-congratulations. He became our substitute. And as our substitute, he altered our state before God. He altered our state before God the Father. That's the next thing you need to write down. See, we were spiritually dead. He has made us alive. Notice that within the text that we have right in front of us. He says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, we were spiritually dead, flatlining, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice who the active agent is in this. God is the one who made us alive. God is the one who that then forgave us. God is the one who canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He is the one who set it aside, nailing it to the cross. See, he is the one who altered our state before him. He transformed us. We were bad, and he, he took the badness, and he's then made us Good by the power of his spirit as we repent of our sins and receive Christ. He gives us his spirit to grow his son and make us into little Jesuses. See, the most amazing thing about this is not that Jesus died, but he allowed us to share in his victory. He allowed us to share in his victory. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is referring to the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And put them to open shame by triumphing 
over them and him. See, Jesus is the one who disarmed the rulers and authorities. And here it is referring to the spirit realm. He is victorious. They have no power over him. He has shamed them in their disobedience by dying to win us. They may have thought, and I've wondered this, you know, what did the demons think? What did the devil think when Jesus died? Do you think he was celebrating? I think so. I think he was celebrating, but I don't think he realized that in actuality, he was sealing his own doom. You know, I came across this story, and I I read this story the other day, and the author of the story said, I have no idea what this means and why I even give you the story. It's It's just kind of interesting. Well, I understand the meaning of this story. It's about, the story is about this young man named Trey Johnson of Hugo High School in Hugo, Oklahoma. It actually happened two years ago, and he was in a high school basketball game, and it was in the quarterfinals. And they're playing this game, and the seconds were ticking down. They're up one point, seconds away from winning this game, and uh, against Millwood High School. Now, Trey, he's a senior guard. He received the inbounds pass, and instead of dribbling out the clock, he, he runs, broke to the basket, scores a layup. And he starts celebrating, and half the place is like, woohoo! And the other half is sitting there in stunned silence. And he's celebrating until he realized he made it in the wrong basket. He actually made the game winner for the other team. Completely. It's a true story. And actually, as I was researching this, this isn't a rare occurrence, strangely enough. Other people have done this. And Trey did it, and he's celebrating, and he realized that the crowd that should be cheering is sitting there in silence. And he realized what he'd done. See, I think the devil did that too. He's like, victory! You just scored it for Jesus. You just saw it in God's basket. And you won the game for him. You thought you were winning the game for yourself, and you're actually winning the game for him. You know, through Jesus, we have victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can have victory. We're on the winning team. And since we have victory, we now have an inconceivable second chance. We have an inconceivable second chance. God, that's what I love about God. Our God is the God of the U-turn. God of second chances. The God who is the, of the tabula rasa. In other words, he cleans your slate. He doesn't let us stay in our sins and our stains. God is the God of second chances, that he doesn't let us stay in our sins, that he will forgive no matter how long of life you've lived apart from God, that if you truly trust in Christ, that he will forgive you, no matter what it is that you have done. Isn't that great? But I'm still trying to understand why that we don't bask in that. Understand that we have that second chance. It's an inconceivable second chance. Now, what does that mean to have a, a, a second chance like that? It means that we can be assured that our past can no longer be used against us. See, when Jesus died on that cross and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, that it was showing that I have dealt with sin, your, pat, your sin of your past, your present, and your future in one shot. That's how awesome his death was on the cross. Their past can no longer be used against you. Now, I was talking to a brother of ours uh, who goes to the Sugar Grove campus just this last week, and he was sharing his testimony with me, this amazing testimony. Uh, and I, he, he was, I was asking about how he came to know the Lord and what happened in his life, and he was telling me that he had, been a, had a successful business in Chicago, and the, the problem was is he was dealing cocaine on the side. And he ended up getting arrested and went to prison for 13 years. And as he was in prison, he was in federal and state, his, his wife died, his brother died, his parents died, and then his son actually got uh, committed murder 
while he was in prison, and his son is now serving in prison. And he's waiting for his son to get out. Who's in, uh, strangely enough, he's my age. Been in since he was 16. And he was sharing just how Christ came into his life. And he said, when I got out, everywhere I went, I couldn't get a job. Because he has to write down on the application that he was a felon. But it was someone gave him a second chance from Village Bible Church. And able to hire him and give him a job. And he said, I'm not going to use your pass against you. And this man is working and doing such an amazing job. You know, and even though society might try to use our past against us, God doesn't, and that's the only court that really matters. You know that? It's the only one that really counts. Yeah, we might experience hardship for our past, but God will never, if you trust in Christ, will never, ever use your past against you. Never. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. There's no one that can take it away. Nothing that we do will separate us from the love of Christ. Jesus, if we truly hold on to him. Now, it not only shows that our past can no longer be used against us, but it also shows us that there is now a whole new perspective on life. We now have a new perspective on life. We have a new lens at which to look at the world, and that it's through Jesus and his death on the cross. It's viewed by faith. I'm amazed at how much as I age, that I see the struggles that we have just have to do with the wrong perspective, especially as Christians. We have a tendency to let the world get to us and fear creep in. Remember, God seals us, but we're leaky vessels. We have to constantly be filled by him to have him direct our conversation, I mean, direct our, our, our vision. Just like with me, I've got glasses. And in the morning, if I get up and I don't put my glasses on, I can't see things very well. See, when we get up in the morning, we have to put on our eyes of faith to see the world through the lens of Christ and how we are to live because we know that the cross is a picture of what Jesus did on the cross for us. I mean, in that he showed his love for us and it shows that we were bought at a price. You know that? You're not your own anymore. You know that? That God bought us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20, uh, we read this. It's page 955. Or do you, want, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. You are not your own for you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. That God paid the price for you. That you're kind of a big deal. You know that? You're kind of a big deal because Jesus died for you. He bought you with a price. We are his and he is ours and because of that our views of life change. What we value changes. How we live changes. What we do changes. What we watch changes. How we spend our money changes. Why? Because we see the depth of his love to us and we want to do what pleases him as a loving response of gratitude. We need to look at things differently. To see things through the lens of Jesus Christ. You know, I've, unfortunately for the last few weeks, I've, um, and, and part of the, my job is, is uh, being with people in the time of bereavement when they lose someone and going to the cemetery. And as you go to the cemetery and you interact with people and you see these gravestones, and I like to go through and I see the names and you see the dates, and sometimes you see like maybe they'll, if they spend a little bit more money, they'll put a picture of them on there or something about their life, or maybe if they were a veteran or they were in a fraternal organization, maybe a Bible verse. But more often than not, most of the time, the only thing that's there is their name, their birth date, a dash, and their end date when they die. And I look at that and I go, what does that tell me about their life? You know, the most important part, though, of the tombstone is it's the dash. 
It's the dash because it's what it was done for how they lived their life. You know, I, I see the beginning date, and many, many of us, we don't know our end date. You know, we don't have, it comes on the back of our head, expires on. We don't have that. But we, we need to live for God, that dash. I mean, what does that dash represent? It represents our life. It represents our life. I mentioned a couple weeks back, I had a classmate that took his own life. Now, I know that might not seem like a big deal to many of you. If you had to, went to a school like West High, there's a lot of people in your class. But in my small town that I grew up in, there were 30 people. And for many of us, we were in the same school together for 12 years. I mean, as a matter of fact, 13. Uh, we were together a long time. And so this classmate of mine uh, took his own life. And uh, sent a shock through our class, and we've been corresponding with one another. And as I went back, I looked at his Facebook page, and it broke my heart. Because I saw a man who wasted his life. He just he would spend his time at the bar drinking. Every Facebook entry was something perverse or a dirty joke. And he, he did nothing, contributed nothing, left nothing. It was very sad. And I remember sharing Christ with him. And I remember sharing the truth of who Jesus is to him, and they laughed at me. I said, well, it happens when you die. And he and another friend were standing there, and they said, you just you take a dirt nap, it's over. I said, well, what a futile life. What's the point of existing then? There must be something more. And there is. There is something more. We have so much more to live for. We have Christ. And he has given us new life and hope in him. See, we need to see life from God's perspective. It's so valuable that he gave his son to save us so that we might live for him and use this precious life for his glory. As the British missionary C.T. Studd once wrote, only one life, a brief, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what we've done for Christ will last. We need to live for the Lord who gave himself for us, but we cannot do it by ourselves. See, the last thing I want us to understand today is that we have been given a new power for living. We've given a new power for living. That we don't need to go forth and live this futile existence of of nihilism or this uh, empty life. But we have hope, a living hope. We have power to live, a power to change, a power to be different. Look at verse 12 for a moment. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Powerful working of God. Look at that phrase, powerful working of God. What was the powerful working of God in him? You know, in Romans chapter 8, it tells us what this power is. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 through 17, we see what this power is. If the spirit of him, and I'm in Romans 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 11, page 944. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. God's power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. That's power. That is power. You know, I think of when you hear about someone flatlining on the, on the operating table, what do they do? They take those paddles and they shock them. And it sends, you know, it sends this, this jolt through their body to help awaken the heart. And they continue to do that two or three times to try to bring them back. 
But you know, even that can't bring back certain people. I mean, if you've been dead for a long period of time, you only have minutes to do that jolt. And even then, it doesn't work all the time. See, when God comes on and he puts the paddles of life by the Spirit, he always brings back to life those that touch him. That is what brings life. It is the power that raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. This is in Romans chapter 8. To live according to the flesh, for you live, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, God has given us the same spirit to dwell in us, to help change us from the inside out, that we not, we're not what we were anymore, and we're not yet what we're going to be, but God is transforming us and changing us as we submit to him, that you don't have to be stuck in your sins any longer. That he took the penalty and and paid the price for your sin and gave you his spirit that you can live that life that he wants you to live. Are you living that life? What is keeping you from it? Is it disobedience? Is it you can't see the glory of the cross? Are you so blinded by your cultural conveniences and your sins that you can't see the light and life of Christ and what he has done for you to set you free of your sin? That he died to set us free, to wake us up, that we might be revived and alive to God. I fear for us in our day and age. We are so dead to God. We are so entertained by the trivialities of this world that are passing away. And we we don't realize the true life that is available to us in the here and now. That we will start now and yet enter into eternity. There are many of us in this room, the idea of spending eternity with Jesus is dread. Well, if that's the case, then I really doubt if you truly know, truly know who Jesus is. Because the God that I will be spending eternity with is not one I dread, but the one I long for, the one that my heart beats for, the one that gives me joy and hope. It's just like when I was, when I was dating my wife and I was so excited to see her and I still am to this day. I freak my wife out because in the morning I'll be staring at her and I'm like, wow, I'm a blessed man. I just, and she's like, what are you doing? I love you, honey. I do. And I'm amazed. I'm still delighted to be around her. I don't know if she could say the same about me. But I delight in being around her. And I long to be with her, to spend time with her. How much more with Christ? How much more? That life in him. To see and stare at him and go, you are amazing. You're unbelievable. That you would love me. That you would give your life for me is unimaginable. We need God's Spirit. It is God's Spirit that is working in and through us, and it's available through Jesus' death on the cross. See, the cross is more than a symbol. The cross is a symbol of hope and life. For those who don't know Christ, I mean, it's hope, but if they refuse it, then it becomes a symbol of death. The cross is more than a symbol. It's actually a declarative statement that sin has been judged, that man will be judged, and that God has enabled man to escape that judgment by placing his faith in Jesus. 
As John chapter 5, verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment, he does not come into judgment, but is path from, passed from death to life. In John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Do you believe? What is your opinion of the cross now? Has it changed? Is it the same? I hope you see it as how God intended you to see it. This is a symbol of life. For all who repent of their sin, turn from it, place their faith and trust in Him. And if you haven't done that yet, you can do so. Turn away from your sin, confess Christ, and He will save and transform you both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful that you have called us unto yourself, that you would choose to die for us, and you've given us this wonderful cross. Lord, we know in the ancient world that it was a picture of death, yet, Lord, we now we see it as a great symbol of life. It's a symbol of hope, because it symbolizes dying to our old way of life, but having life and hope and peace in you because of what you have done through the person of your Son. So, Lord, glorify us. Help us to live our lives in gratitude, not trying to pay you back, but just being thankful for what you've done for us. And, Lord, for those that are still holding on to their sins, I pray that you might show them the power of the cross, that it, to those in the world it is the uh, foolishness, but to those of us who are being saved it is the very power and wisdom of God. Lord, please grow us, show us who you are, Speak in our midst, revive our hearts, awaken us out of our spiritual apathy and help us to see the true life that you have enabled us to have and help us to bask and live in that truth. Knowing that we are not what we were and we are not fully what we shall be, but as we are in the here and now, we surrender to you, asking you to show this resurrection life in us, giving us the power to say no to the sins of our past and live for you. Glorify your name in our midst, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.